This podcast is brought to you by the Stonefish. Despite its name, if you step on a stonefish, you will not get stoned. In fact, quite the opposite. The venomous spine of the stonefish has been sobering up beachgoers since before there were beaches. Thank you, stonefish. Hello, my fishy friends, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Getting Fishy With It podcast. I'm Josh. I'm Amber. I'm Christine. And today we're going to be recapping and uh, continuing our water chemistry. But before we do that, let's get into what's new with y'all. Amber? Yo, what's up? (laughs) (laughs) Hello, fellow youth. (laughs) She's like surprised. She's like, wait, you called on me? (laughs) I get to go first? Sure. Yeah, I... There really hasn't been much going on with me. I know we talked about this a little bit before we start the episode, guys. But I guess the most exciting thing in my life was uh, jumping on the Barbenheimer train. So Barbie and Oppenheimer. So my husband we and I, we tried to schedule both movies for one day, which ended up not working because all the movie theaters were sold out for Mm -hmm. barbie and oppenheimer at the same time so we were just like okay so we managed to get in to see oppenheimer which to me that was like a 10 out of 10 movie there were some oh you know weird (laughs) things with it but i think because like the rest of it kind of overshadowed those parts including like the music was magnificent Mm -hmm. and was good you know cillian murphy like He's so good in like everything he does. I think it just really like I was like really into it. And I usually don't like those type of movies like the docus. So, Mm. yeah, that was interesting. And then we finally got to see Barbie. And I mean, Barbie is the hype for it is real. When I wake up in my own pink world, I get up out of bed and wait for my homegirls. I really we both really enjoyed it. Um, so yeah, that was pretty much my, you know, week weekend. That's awesome. And shout out to your other podcast. So what happens next? Is this like we're doing a little mini crossover here? Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) We totally are. (laughs) If you are interested in a movie podcast, definitely check out our the our podcast info. If you look at the about page for us, you'll see the info for Amber's podcast that she does with her husband. So check it out. It's awesome. But yeah, what about you, Christine? Same, except I haven't seen Oppenheimer yet. <laughs> I haven't had a chance. And again, like this is kind of weirdly unprecedented. And I, it, it's not just because of summer. It's just been hard to get like tickets to go see these movies. So we didn't really want to do both on the same day just because, I don't know, it's a lot of sitting. <laughs> I'm going to get a blood clot in my legs. <laughs> Yeah, especially with like movies going for three hours nowadays. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Need a break there. Sure, yeah, yeah. There should be like intermission, like Broadway. I know. I I feel like back when like the Lord of the Rings movies came out, like when you guys were still infants or whatever. (laughs) Um, I feel like some of the first ones 
maybe some theaters had intermission, but I don't know. But I did see Barbie, which I loved. I thought it was fantastic and it was, I, I loved it so much. So it was great. The busiest I've seen my movie theater on like a random Monday afternoon, um, which was great. But other than that, it's been hot here. I've just been hanging out, playing video games. Uh, that's it. No plans. <laughs> how about how about you, Josh? Uh, so I guess like the kind of exciting thing that happened to me was um, Columbia Communications picked up an article that was that I was like quoted in, I guess, or something. It was like a, a part of a piece was about me and about this old. Um, book bank and tutoring center that I was affiliated with when I was a kid. And I, and I found out uh, later on, we were like me and my family were kind of like the beginning, like kind of the spawning uh, point in time for that, uh, the creation of that tutoring center. So Columbia picked that up somehow and they were excited about it. And so they did a little article on me and they took a couple photos and were like, here, <laughs> take a photo of you in front of the fish, you know, the fish system. So I'm like standing there awkwardly in my lab coat, <laughs> uh, but it was very nice. It was very sweet and everyone had very kind things to say. So it was really, it was really a, a nice, it was a nice week. It was a good feel good week. Um, so I, I thoroughly enjoyed the attention because I'm a giant attention whore. <laughs> I'm the dude. So that's what you call me, you know, uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. No, that's that was awesome. a really good piece that they wrote. And I honestly was just like, could Josh get any cooler? And then I was like, <laughs> he did. <laughs> Amber and, and I have been sunglasses saying on. <laughs> we need to like take that picture and have the animated like sunglasses drop down on you. Yes. Like the thug life ones. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yes. That's the Yeah, and I thought that article was awesome. And uh Amber and I agreed that Josh is the coolest person in lab animal science. I'm the coolest. Oh God, I don't know if I want that title. <laughs> I mean, it's not a high bar. Let's I know, that's honest. true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> No offense, lab animal uh, folks. We're all just a bunch of nerds, right? So, Heck yeah. <laughs> all right, let's get into the episode. We Ooh. talked so much about water chemistry last time that we ran out of time. So now we are going to talk more about water chemistry. I hope it was fun falling asleep to that. <laughs> we I have know. a whole other episode, guys. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it's it's all good. If and you're I, curious about water chemistry, man, this is this is the podcast for you right now. We're going to get into it. It's a literal <laughs> deep dive. There you go. <laughs> yeah. No, it's all... <laughs> I love a good pun. Yeah, I know. So we, we're very aware of that, Josh. That you... <laughs> I only talk about that every episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you already did a pun earlier and you forgot about it. So you didn't even In notice the... it. I, really? You said oh my God, you said spawned. You said spawned. So you're, oh my goodness, you're right. Okay, <laughs> it's fine. So the last episode we talked about only kind of three things under the umbrella of water chemistry. We talked about water temperature and its impacts on other factors in water chemistry, including pH and how toxic ammonia can be. Um, we talked about pH, which is how acidic or basic the water is and how that has an impact on things like ammonia toxicity um, and even things like, you know, how water can be buffered based on how many dissolved ions are in the water. Uh, mm -hmm. And then we talked about nitrogenous waste, which is your ammonia, your nitrite, your nitrate, 
and how the ammonia becomes nitrate over time through nitrite. So we talked about all those things. There's so much to all of that that we ran out of time. So <laughs> did you guys have any other thoughts or anything you wanted to add to what we, we talked about with those things or anything you wanted to comment on those? Uh, I don't think I had anything to add that I can remember from from last week. I'm sure I'll have more things to add as you go through these subjects today. Sure. Sounds good. How about you, Amber? No, I, I don't have anything much to say about these. Okay. I think the last one that we talked about, though, was very interesting because there were like three different types of it. I'm not sure if that was like, maybe it was the nitrogenous waste yeah. that we were looking at. Yeah. And so that one was the most surprising to me because usually you just focus on like one aspect of it, like, you know, the nitrates, um, nitrites and so on and so forth. But I was just like, oh, there's actually more to this than what they teach you. And that's kind of bad. <laughs> it's, yeah. yeah it's do you mean really like the ammonia, ammonium and the whole table and how oh, do you mean yeah. that interplay? Sorry, it was the ammonia. Yeah, that one was crazy. So, yeah, like I, I don't know that I knew that like when I was a kid per se, but I learned about that later on. And so the interplay of like pH and I think temperature also. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, temperature has an impact things, on that. Right? Yeah, it's so sure. it's so nuts. Like it's like well worth it to look up like a table of those things. Right, mm -hmm. for sure. The thing that I always try to drive home with folks, though, and like I'll reiterate this again. I said this last time was is just the fact that like stability in your water parameters, whatever you can achieve, is more important than having like the exact water parameters that you think you need. I mean, mm. within the limits of what is like livable for an animal, right? Mm -hmm. But like, you know, if you're in a place where your water chemistry, you know, where we live here, the water's really hard. So the pH is always pretty high. And if you don't have the resources to, you know, make your own RO water or DI water and dose it, and you're just using dechloraminated or dechlorinated uh, tap water, if 7.8 or 8.5 is what you can re like regularly achieve in pH, that's fine. Just like acclimate your fish slowly. And it's better to have stability over time than it is to be like constantly swinging that pH around or your, you know, um, things like how salty the water is, which we'll talk mm -hmm. about in a minute. It's more important to keep it stable than it is to reach some like platonic ideal of what your water should look like. So that's the thing that I'm usually trying to like hammer home to folks. So <laughs> I don't know if that's something you guys ever kind of learned when you were learning all this stuff. Yeah, I think you mentioned it last week, but I it's did, all yeah. about like the range is awesome. It's really nice and wide, but just getting there is a slow transition and pH is log logarithmic. So when you go one integer from seven to eight, that's 10 times, right? The, the amount. So it's like just a good reminder that like, not only is it tough for them to change pHs, but it's also quite a crazy scale when you go up like that. Yep. So yeah. Yeah, for sure. Alrighty, so let's get into the weird nitty gritty beyond the stuff that people generally learn about. So <laughs> we'll start talking about salinity and conductivity. Something that I didn't really understand the difference between until I started doing a little more research for this podcast was the kind of the difference between those two things, like what's mm. salinity and what's conductivity and like how to like define what's which one is salinity and which one's conductivity. I don't know if either of you guys had ever like kind of I've never really done much work with marine species. I think maybe you have, Josh. 
I don't know if that was something that you ever had to look up. Specifically the different, well, no, actually, because like when we did anything with uh, saltwater animals, like cuttlefish and stuff, we would just use like salinity probes and we mm-hmm. didn't really use connectivity measurements that much. So we just like switched right over. <laughs> so it was a little bit easier, but it was like speaking a completely different language. And I didn't always know like the conversion or what caused like the differences basically. So I, it was just like two completely different things, like almost like two different parameters to me. Yeah. How about you, Amber? Have you ever worked with marine species at all? No, I haven't, but I, we tested salinity with our rotifers and I don't know if like Mm. other people do that. And so that's the only time like we really measure salinity um, versus like having the pro for the conductivities. That's kind of like the major thing, at least for like zebrafish. Mm -hmm. You, when you do the testing for salinity, do you use the refractometer? Yes. You know what else? I do that. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I have... I, there's a couple of different things you can do. There's like probes, refractometers, and then also like the hydrometer. Yeah. Like the really simple one. The hydrometer. <laughs> oh, wait, seems I think like... we use the hydrometer. It's like shaped it's... like a. It's not. It's like the the refractometer looks like a. You're looking through a little telescope. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, we use the other one. <laughs> the hydrometer. Okay. Yeah. Which is shaped like nothing I've ever seen. It's just the weirdest shape, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's like a weird like bulbous yes. i don't know but is it has yours, that needle is it from instant ocean is it just like not to Mine drop is. names okay you just got it from instant ocean yeah yeah it's like okay. eight dollars or something like that and oh. the only thing you have to do the trick is you gotta tap it hard yep. to get all the bubbles off the needle otherwise it completely throws off your salinity reading <laughs> i do recommend really a salty. refractometer if you've got if you don't have one those are cheap too. It's not. Oh yeah, they're they're really cheap. They're cheap. Yeah. The other thing I've used a refractometer for, and like I when I one of the times I went on a shark tagging trip, one of the things they would do is measure the salinity of the water in the area where the mm. they're collecting the sharks. And I immediately just grabbed the refractometer and used it. And the guy's like, <laughs> "How do you know how to use?" I'm like, "We use it to measure the specific gravity of cat urine and dog urine." Yes. <laughs> true i forgot about that right so you were familiar with it but you've yeah. before <laughs> i'm like this is just i'm just not putting pee on this this time it's disgusting <laughs> hey there are way worse things that i have handled in my career than just urine so all right whatever. fair enough fair enough <laughs> yeah uh so anyway the difference between these two things literally is just like scale when you're looking at scale so it gets really hard to measure at the micro level when you are talking about measures of quote unquote salinity below a certain like threshold. So mm-hmm. when you're talking about pretty close to fresh water or just like slightly, slightly salty water, like things below like five PPT, which is like the, the parts per thousand, which is how we measure salinity generally, then generally we're talking about conductivity. Um, when we're in, in our context, anyway, when you're working with like aquatic organisms. <clears throat> and so Generally, conductivity is kind of just the measure of like fresh water to conduct conduct electricity. So like the electrolytes that are in that water and the units that we use, everyone always says micro Siemens, right? You hear people talking about that little like Greek mu that looks like a U and the S, which is micro Siemens is the unit we use to measure conductivity. One thing I realized researching this, that it's actually micro siemens per centimeter that we're measuring we just drop that part of the unit i guess i don't know so mm-hmm. um and then the actual like si unit for that is actually siemens per meter <laughs> so 
<laughs> it's complicated, but we're basically looking at like all the dissolved ions in like something close to fresh water. And when you're talking about distilled water, it should be pretty darn close to zero because it's almost pure. Mm -hmm. um, and then when you add things like sodium or calcium or carbonates or potassium to the water, that conductivity is going to start creeping up and you're going to see values that are in the hundreds or the two hundreds. A lot of tap water is like a, a couple hundred uh, microsiemens per centimeter is what you're seeing. Um, and then, you know, once you're getting into like just a little bit of like slightly salty water, we're talking about salinity at that point. And you're looking at the number of parts of these uh, uh, dissolved ions per thousand in the so, water. Okay. So if you have a conductivity that's like increasing because you're adding like potassium and calcium and other things that are not like sodium and chloride, right? Yep. Will that raise effectively raise the salinity as well, right? Because you're just saying it's a matter of scale. So like, let's say that you really dumped a bunch in, will that eventually raise your salinity? It'll raise your general, like your hardness values, which are all related to salinity. So yes. Oh, okay. All yeah. Right. So cool. it's, um, but salinity in general is just like the larger volume of electrolytes that are in the water. So um, and you. then we're basically measuring conductivity in our systems with a setup where an alternating current is passed between two electrodes mm -hmm. and it's measuring how much of that electricity is actually passing between those two electrodes. That probably makes sense. So it probably has like a certain like threshold or a certain amount of electricity that's like shooting from one side of the left yeah. detects how much is coming from the other side and yeah. stuff. And it's so. an alternating current. So it's going like back and forth or whatever. So Oh, well, look at someone knows a lot about conductivity probes, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> hey, and everything I've been told is, hey, if it's working, don't touch it. Just leave it alone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's 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 the advice that we've gotten from a lot of vendors. They're like, OK, you know, they're like constantly telling you to calibrate your pH probes on a regular oh, basis. But they're like yeah. conductivity, they're like, nope, do you just leave it for a year or whatever? I don't know. I'm not still I, I don't want to say that people should follow that guideline. So just look up what your vendor says or sure. <laughs> look it up online. Ask your vendor. And if our vendors have said, just leave them alone. <laughs> so, yes. So, yeah, it's like, you don't got to tell me twice. I got to touch that pH probe more than I ever want to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I see it in my dreams. So, <laughs> although they're more nightmares, but you know, there you go. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so, one of the reasons why we care about these values, salinity, conductivity, et cetera, for various species. And we're still mostly talking about freshwater here, but we can get into a little bit of salt water. It's just, there's a lot more nuance to like marine ecosystems and marine chemistry than there is in freshwater. Mm -hmm. We're doing kind of easy mode working with freshwater fish, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but one of the reasons we care is that Freshwater fish are constantly trying to lose water because like water is constantly trying to get into their body because they are uh, like their insides are saltier. And so basically via osmosis, moisture is trying to get into them. So they're constantly trying to get rid of that moisture. So messing with the salinity or the conductivity of the water in the case of freshwater fish, often it's like a micro level. So we're messing with the conductivity of the water can impact the amount of osmotic stress that fish are under. So the, the closer to pure distilled water that we are putting our fish in, the more technically for the, for most fish, the more osmotic stress they're going to be under. So the more mm -hmm. they're trying to get rid of that water. Um, and if you are increasing the salinity, ostensibly anyway, if you're increasing the salinity to a point where 
you have it's close the the conductivity is more similar to what's physiologically inside their bodies they are kind of in um what is it, isotonic state and they don't have to mm-hmm. do as much osmotic um like procedures to try to like they're not as much uh, under as much osmotic stress I think uh, I said, um, I forget if I said this when we talked about um, maybe like fish anatomy or something, because we talked about like excretory and excretory system and stuff. Yeah. Um, but specifically, I, I I don't remember if I told the story where basically I did like a water change on my tank and the fish were like looking kind of bad afterwards. Like I could tell like they were one or two of them was agitated and it kind of looked like it was going to die. Right. Like you can kind of tell, like just based on their reaction, they're not really like, they're just kind of like, look like they're in shock a little bit. And like, it wasn't all of them. It was just like one or two, but you know, different fish have different sensitivities. And then that's when I was like, Oh, I wonder if it's like that. I didn't put any salt in this time. Cause I was like running low or whatever. And I, I grabbed some or what was left and I, and I like mixed it up and put it in the tank and that fish like righted itself like pretty darn quick. I can see. I can fight. Like in a, in maybe an hour or two, it was totally fine swimming around and I thought it was a goner for sure. (laughs) So it's quite amazing how just reducing the osmotic stress was enough to like give him a little bit longer life and he's still doing fine. So sure. That's one of the reasons why sometimes you'll see like, especially in like in the aquarium hobby, you'll see folks talking about doing like salt, like baths or like increasing the salinity of the water that the fish are in. Mm -hmm. And that can be just, you know, if they have a systemic health issue going on or they have an infection or something, maybe they have a big wound, which is really impacting their ability to like keep their, their hydration level appropriate. Mm -hmm. Um, just getting rid of that excess osmotic stress on the fish can be enough to like kind of help them get through things. Think of it like an IV drip, you know, they're getting kind of physiological saline. They're just bathed in it. So um, it's just less stress, less stress on their bodies to have to, to go through. So does that make sense? Yeah. And I should add like, there is a scale where you go the other way and it does get too salty for them. Yep. So you don't want to yeah. go too far that direction. And there are people who do things like salt baths and whatever. We could do a, a, a whole thing on fish diseases. I don't even know if we have that on the list, but we could probably could. And it's really useful for like ectoparasites and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Because anything that's on the skin or, or even kind of like right below the skin, like when you put them in that uh, salt bath, like that level of osmotic stress is tough on parasites, right? And so then they yeah. will not cling on long enough or maybe it'll disrupt their their ability to replicate or whatever. And then they're they're off the fish and then you can kind of like, you know, it's it's just good, it's just a good way to get rid of some of those stuff. So the fish, it's almost like a, a weak version of like chemotherapy, right? It's like you survive, but the parasite doesn't, or like you survive, the tumor does not. But like yep. it still could do a little damage, but still it's more worth it um, overall. So sorry, sure. I just wanted to add that. Yeah. And I've done it with saltwater fish where like we would have uh wild saltwater fish come in and mm-hmm. we you put them in like distilled water briefly. Yeah, yeah. In fresh wow. water, because then those parasites can't handle it. Yeah, they hate it so much. <laughs> and like you have to be careful with like scaleless fish and fish that like don't have a lot of like kind of body armor because their ability to regulate their like osmotic stress is like reduced Way sometimes. Okay. Yeah. So, but like, you know just the your average fish with scales they're okay for a little bit although i have had like i've done it on a beta that had beta you guys call it beta i call it beta Beta whatever you want (laughs) thanks (laughs) uh anyway but like 
I have done a like really high concentration salt bath on a betta and had the fish be like, I don't like this and jump out mm-hmm. and just hit the floor. And it's like, well, that's worse than what I just did. Bettas love to jump. We they have sure to put do. like little plugs on all the feed ports like in our in our facilities because they just are like, see you later. Yep. <laughs> wow. Time to, to go jump. to heaven. <laughs> 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 I don't know what that what I don't there must be something also like in nature, I'm guessing, where they're like, oh, they're in like little rice patties or whatever. And they're just like just hopping from place to place sometimes or yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's very interesting. <laughs> I had a it. friend when I worked at like a pet store who had a bunch of bettas at home. And she said to, at one point she was just walking in her house, walking through a house and one of her fish jumped out of the tank that it was in and right under her foot as she was walking. <gasps> you know, it's just like, okay, well, no. rip, rip. That's terrible. <laughs> That's traumatizing. I know. I know. You never forget that feeling. Uh, Time that perfectly. Yeah. And she didn't have shoes or socks on. So. <laughs> oh, oh, no. No. <laughs> Uh, I don't mean to make light of the death of an animal, but it is probably a quick death. It was probably pretty quick. Yeah. He was yeah. like, oop, I made a mistake. And then <laughs> yeah. Peter is wel- welcoming him to the fishy gates. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the scaly gates. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Amber, do you have anything you want to share about like kind of all this salinity talk, connectivity talk? Was there any, have you ever had any experiences with it in like zebrafish? I or don't. frustrations or frustrations <laughs> well, yeah, yeah a lot of frustrations especially with like conductivity especially on older systems too that mm-hmm. can't seem to because we talk a lot about okay make sure that things are stable mm-hmm. like make sure they don't fluctuate too much and conductivity is one of the bigger ones where it's like if you don't mix that salt water up very good mm-hmm. or something happens to your water source Yep. And it just like jumps up. Mm-hmm. And then of course, like, like you just mentioned, like the fish are going to have like such a hard time with that. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I feel like depending on like where you source your materials, like it can be quite a hassle because again, like instant ocean, for example, like, I don't know if they actually, I think they do tell you like what's in it, but sometimes they don't tell you like the amount of, let's say like, oh, calcium, potassium, things like that. And so you're kind of just like, well, I just got to test it out and see. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I find depending on who you get instructions from on your dosing, like, so in the case of, so for, for folks who don't work with zebrafish, and I'm sure we do have some people that don't listen. Don't that don't listen. Don't listen. Oh, I I know plenty of those. <laughs> yeah. oh, and I, I know lots of those too. Um, <laughs> but for people that that like listen that don't work with zebrafish or haven't worked in like a lab setting where we're really trying to be as accurate as possible with our settings, we are generally making up water for our big recirculating systems, our big aquaculture systems with distilled or reverse osmosis water, usually 
reverse osmosis. Mm -hmm. And then we are adding that water to the system as needed for water exchanges or top-ups or whatever. And then there are sensors in the system that will dose the, from these big barrels or small barrels. It's fine if you have a small system too. Um, <laughs> and it will basically, these pumps are pumping water in. Shout out I, to you I'm small not, barrels. I'm not size shaming anybody. It's not about the size of the barrel. <laughs> yeah. It's the peristaltic pump. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Anyway, so. that, was a, that was perfect. That was a home run. Yeah, you guys you could go. just log off. This is great. <laughs> the sorry. end. Yeah. Um, the end. Fade to black. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so we're basically dosing like various uh, mixtures into the system to keep them stable. But, you know, when there's a big water exchange or a lot of water has been used from the system, your conductivity kind of goes down and your pH may change a little bit as the water is being replaced. And so you have a little bit of minor swings that happen in the system. So the, the whole thing with conductivity though, is that like, yeah, it'll swing around a fair bit. And as you mentioned, Amber, like, do you guys measure down to like the gram, how many grams of salt you're putting in or are you just eyeballing it when you're refilling your barrels i think we measure to the gram well it depends on like different facilities so there's some where it's like we just take a cup we fill it up and we Mm -hmm. pour it sure and if you know like how many grams are in that cup that's fine right yeah when i took over my current facility and i know they were trying their best that's bottom line but um they the instruction they were given was dump a half a bag in there oh and it's like what's a half a bag like and so the actual like salinity of those brine barrels of salt water were different depending on who made it up Mm -hmm. and so i like you know there are the manufacturers often have charts for us that say like you know for your dosing system and how it's calibrated here's how many grams of salt you need to put in every liter of water or whatever so i basically just made a chart so that in part like i don't like leaving it until it's almost empty like if i know a weekend's coming up and it's like two-thirds full like i never want to leave the dosing for someone else and i try to like have this culture where we're not doing that to each other so you know if the oh if we can put another 20 liters in that here's how much salt to add so you add the salt you add the 20 liters of water get the big witch's brew stirring cauldron thing <laughs> Everyone has one. Up. yeah exactly it's just a scrap piece of pvc pipe yep, um, always yeah. <laughs> and, yeah and that that's what we do but like so that's part of it too is trying to be consistent is having your solutions be somewhat consistent and i feel like not everybody does it that way which is maybe not great so so like uh, you know at least what i teach the technicians is usually like tech technically speaking it doesn't matter too much what the salinity is in there but like uh, um i i forgot if you guys said this or not but like you know if it's so high when it doses it's going to really spike that connectivity a lot faster right and so that can be your major issue but on the like 
on the reverse end, if you don't make it a like make it concentrated enough in the dosing tank, mm -hmm. then when it pushes into your system and it needs salt water, like to raise the connectivity after water changes and stuff, it's gonna like drain that whole thing out very quickly. Yeah. So you have to find a happy medium. And like, although I do like to have it more on the higher side, and I have like a really bare bones recipe for it, the biggest issue that I see, I guess, the biggest downside is like if you have a really really high salinity, that also comes depending on what brand of salt you use it comes with a lot of like mineral deposits and stuff yeah and those end up like coating your cyst coating your whole tank and like getting in the line and everything like that whereas if you were kind of on the lower side it would be less of a problem but i just would rather them you know check it you have to check it a little less regularly than have to worry about like every day something happening even if i put it on the sign uh on a sign sheet because it just takes like one day of missing it and all of a sudden i'm getting alarms for low connectivity so yeah, that's all definitely. I have to say. <laughs> no, no, I, I totally agree. The other thing is too, like a lot of people keep their conductivity fairly high, um, like 1500 or so, sometimes mm -hmm. a thousand to 1500 that does come with some trade-off. So you may end up having, you know, fewer harmful organisms because they don't like that conductivity. I think that's part of the reason why that people yeah. keep their conductivity that high, but I think it does come with some stress on the system itself. I think that you end up Ooh. with like wearing out parts because you've got a little salt in there and like salt point. and electronic equipment don't mix. Oh man, just it, you don't have a saltwater system, but man, no. the saltwater systems are freaking crazy with that. Yeah. Like yeah. salt just creeps up everywhere. Like it just, it just like grows like oh. ice in the winter time. It just like <laughs> yeah. spiders over everything, and so you have to like wash everything down with like like RO water or something just to like keep the salt from getting everywhere. And it will find the cracks in like the little like chinks in the armor. Like it'll find little cracks in the in the hose or in the pipes or whatever, and it'll make its way out. <laughs> so yeah, annoying it's true and i i think that's why like you know people need to be mindful about you know the trade-off of higher connectivity versus you know the wear on your system or your racks even if they're stainless steel if they're not coated they will have yeah. some hitting and stuff over time so because you do see a little tiny bit of creep in zebrafish systems as well just mm -hmm. between like the bicarb and like that little bit of salt that we add so yeah um I, that's always kind of the like happy medium I'm trying to reach where it's like trying to extend the life of the equipment that I'm using as much as possible, but I want to keep the connectivity at a decent level. So we will probably some other time when we talk about management, we'll talk about this types of stuff again. So maybe it might be good to move on to like off of salt. Sure, <laughs> off yeah, of connectivity yeah, yeah. And solidity. yeah. So all of those things are related though. So the next mm -hmm. thing we're going to talk about is all the hardnesses, as I, I termed it in our little uh, outline, because the <laughs> there's more than one and connectivity and salinity are related to those things like alkalinity and hardness and all the different kind of hardnesses are all related to connectivity and salinity. They're all they mm. kind of there. There's an umbrella that is connectivity and salinity. And inside that is hardness. <laughs> so underneath that umbrella, really. When we talk about hardness in freshwater systems, we're generally talking about two things, general hardness and carbonate hardness. Now, carbonate hardness is basically alkalinity. Did you guys know that before you started working with like zebrafish or... I don't, I do not remember. I, I don't think I knew that before I started working with zebrafish. No, I don't think so. I think I learned that afterwards but sorry. 
Yeah, how, about, how about you, Amber? Have you ever had struggles with alkalinity and stuff, Amber? Um, not that I can think of, but yeah, I did not know that like before I started working with zebrafish. Okay. Well, we'll talk about it a little bit more, but like basically your general hardness when people are talking about like water hardness, that's kind of what people are talking about. It's like magnesium and calcium ions in the water. That's your general hardness. And then when you're talking about carbonate hardness, which is KH. Thank you, Germans, for KH. I don't know why. <laughs> that's that's like a German aquarist thing, I think. So, um, but uh, it's basically carbonate anions in the water that you're looking at with carbonate hardness. And there is a relationship between those things and like some of the other parameters. When I was reading about this, I had read that basically hardness is part of the Bermuda Triangle of water chemistry. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, you know, the, the Ooh, hardness, yeah, hardness, alkalinity, salinity, pH is like a whole Bermuda Triangle where fish go to get lost i don't know or maybe oh, fish, fish keepers do that none of us understand <laughs> <laughs> i understand it a little bit but it's, it's a little right. bit of trial by fire for me where i learned the hard way about like the lack of alkalinity in some systems and such so mm. so alkalinity basically are is the the solution of carbonates in water and so there's two kinds of carbonates. There's just regular carbonates and bicarbonates. So uh, like your sodium bicarbonate that we add for pH buffering in the system. Mm -hmm. It is related to KH. So carbonate hardness and alkalinity are sometimes loosely used interchangeably. Mm. It's fairly okay to do that generally, I think. But it it complicates things a little bit because people... You see alkalinity measured sometimes on some water testing equipment that we use, and sometimes you see carbonate hardness. Mm, and yeah. you can, there are calculators online where you can kind of see how those two things are basically the same, and but the units may be different. Now, carbonate hardness and alkalinity have to do with how much of an acid sponge that water is for things like just loose hydrogen ions. So things like ammonia or um, other acidic chemicals that are in your water. So the higher your alkalinity is, the better buffer or sponge your water is for those loose ions that can impact what your pH is, the power of hydrogen. So the, the more uh, KH, the higher your KH, the higher your alkalinity, the better chance you have of preventing your pH from going down or becoming more acidic because you don't have all these loose hydrogen ions floating around. Does that make it's, sense? Yeah, because pH is just a measure of your free hydrogens, basically, zipping yep. around. Yep. And so like if it's sponging up all these hydrogens, I guess that makes sense. So is that why, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but is that why like, when you add like crushed coral or something that has a lot of calcium carbonate to your system, or even to like, I've done it to just like a bowl of water, like a beaker of water and put my probe in there, the pH probe. And I've found that like it immediately jets to pH really high. Yep. So yeah. Yep. Okay. So that's why. Cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Proof of concept. Yeah. There you go. But yeah, I'm so smart. that's, that's why we call it like buffering capacity or, or like sometimes you'll hear 
a vendor or someone talk about the your big barrel of bicarb big mm-hmm. barrel of bicarb three b's um <laughs> they call it your buffer and so that it kind of is a ph buffer you're basically mm-hmm. throwing carbonates in there in an effort to keep your ph at whatever set point you want it to be at mm-hmm. and in the absence of that in general a lot of our systems have a pretty low alkalinity which is low alkalinity is generally like below 50 milligrams per liter that means that that ability for that system to sponge up loose hydrogen that's coming from the breakdown of fish food or fish waste uh, excretion it'll cause your ph just tank no pun intended <laughs> so and i think we talked about that a little bit last time where like mm-hmm. you know a system that isn't being dosed so there's no ph probe in there keeping an eye on it if the alkalinity is not high enough your ph is going to take a dive really quickly and you can kill stuff pretty fast with that so easy yeah, that's I think one of the Achilles heels of a lot of our systems is that we keep our alkalinity too low. Mm. And so you don't have kind of that insurance policy to like stabilize your pH. Um, and that's why you do hear some folks throw crushed coral in their system or aragonite, same thing, right? Because that does help with the alkalinity, but it dissolves over time in fresh water. And so you have to replenish it because it's kind of losing those carbonate uh, anions into the water and those are grabbing those loose hydrogens that are sticking around. So does that make sense? Yeah. In fact, like I was, I think maybe we were talking about this a little last week, but certainly this week as well. And like, just kind of getting an understanding of it. And I was like, dang, I need to go. Cause I was looking back at some of my old water quality and I could see over time after I added new crushed coral, like little by little, the numbers just started to drop week by week. And so like, now I have to go back after a few months and like, renew things mm. uh, i wasn't sure if i should just like shake the bags that i have or add new stuff so i might i shook them the first time i don't think it really had an effect so i think i'm gonna add new uh some new calcium carbonate because i have a bunch a bunch of bags of crushed coral lying around yeah i think it's there's no harm in just adding uh, the thing that you want to be mindful of is that like if you throw a bunch of brand new stuff in there it may shoot your alkalinity up real fast and maybe it's a matter of like you know adding smaller amounts mm-hmm. over time to try to keep things stable or at least like having a threshold for your alkalinity where you say like, Hey, if it gets below this, we need to intervene rather than have it kind of swing around. Mm. Um, because it's just, you lose that kind of like security blanket buffering blanket. Any thoughts on that, Amber? Uh, no, my mind is kind of blown. Cause I feel like we don't <laughs> worry at least like the facilities I've been in. We haven't really focused a lot on alkalinity. Mm-hmm. Or like the hardness. I know we do testing for hardness and I've never had it to where it was like crazy, but it is really interesting that you talk about like, you know, an acid sponge and I'm like, oh, you know, if we had been doing this, maybe we wouldn't have those pH crashes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's <laughs> yeah. almost certainly totally. what caused it. It's almost certainly what caused yeah. it. Yeah. That yeah. was a lesson learned for me. Like only recently learning about this did i go back and learn things from before that were an issue right like like i was telling you about that killifish system that just like crashed out of nowhere and i was like mm-hmm. i don't get it like it's getting fed from the water that we use in the main system and like now understanding this it completely makes sense right yeah why that yeah alkalinity is too low that's generally it generally it's not bad to have like, you know, carbonates being added into the system, providing you can keep your pH where you need it to be. Like having a higher alkalinity is generally okay. But like I was kind of mentioning before, having all these like dissolved 
uh, minerals in the water can have a bit of an impact on your systems over time. Like it can cause wear, excess wear on the systems. There's a bit of like mineral creep that happens too. You get kind of that like ring around like everything as water's evaporating. So equipment can get damaged if you've got too many bicarbs in there. Um, and I think like I had read, and again, we're talking mostly freshwater today, but there's some evidence that like too many uh, carbonates in the water can cause corals to like have necrosis in their tissues. So oh, I do, wow. do not know That's the mechanism fun. of that. I have no idea because I never worked with any Nidarians in my life. So, <laughs> But if there's anyone out there who is a coral specialist who would like to come on the pod, reach out to us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. I knew a decent amount of like coral heads like people who just were really into corals because they'd be so excited about like fragging off the little pieces of coral and like selling it for more money and all this stuff like uh -huh. they have like the really strong lights there were like there were people who just would come into the pet store and spend so much money on corals it's crazy wow <laughs> i've never worked in a store that sold that stuff i did go on the uh, not the national the local news back home to talk about corals once it was very random. Like, oh man, I, I mean, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say there was a, a, a situation and maybe you guys have heard of this before, but like some corals, if you take them out of water, they release a gas mm. that can make you very sick or maybe kill you. Whoa. It's oh, like, wow. a so they, they, it's a defense mechanism that they have underwater, but it can like vaporize, I guess. I don't recall. I did a bunch of research for it. This was years ago, so I don't remember all the details, but someone who was a hobbyist around where I lived did this and like made his whole household very sick. And oh. so I, we had a saltwater like tank in the lobby of my facility. And so I got to stand there in my lab coat because I totally wear a lab coat all the time and not video game t-shirts at work. <laughs> <laughs> but um, and I talked about, you know, like, you know, safe handling for these organisms. Cause people like and I was talking about how people don't realize they're animals and like yeah. we need to be mindful of, you know, our safety when handling any animals. Very true. And I mean, we might have to get better at figuring out how to culture all these things because like florida corals are just like dying in droves yeah. thanks to the heat right so i i imagine that they're in the future we will probably try to save some species by keeping them in like i don't know in facilities I'm well and sure. there are places that are working on like gmo corals that actually like are mm. heat resistant and they're looking at potentially releasing them as like animals that can survive various anthropogenic things Ooh. Yeah, that's cool. But this is not a coral podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Welcome back to Coral Corals. Yeah. <laughs> what would the coral name be? Yeah, <laughs> Nidarian getting getting stingy with it. Getting stingy with it. <laughs> yeah, that's great. How about the coral corral? <laughs> there you go. Nice. Getting stingy with it. Was there anything else you guys wanted to chat about regarding like hardness or alkalinity or anything like that? No, just that it's important. To, there are reasons why it's important, as Christine kind of highlighted today. So I think it is something to definitely pay attention to. And, and you know, I think probably doing some research, not only what we talked about today, but I'll probably also just doing some research on like how to affect that number if it's not where you want it to be. So, yeah, yeah. definitely good. 
and trying to keep it stable rather than like trying to reach this like weird goal. So, you know, depending on what species you keep, a lot of them are pretty tolerant of like a wide range of hardnesses. So do what you can do reasonably in your system without actually causing stressful swings in the water chemistry. All right. So that's hardness. Next thing we're going to talk about, we're going to start talking about dissolved things that aren't just minerals. So (laughs) very, this is where things go off the rails because I don't know very much about chemistry. (laughs) We're going to do our best. What we, the the disclaimer is we're doing our best. And if you know better than us, email us and tell us all about it. (laughs) Yeah. And then maybe you can come on the podcast and talk about. We'll force you onto the pod. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Any water chemists out there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, So the next thing we're going to talk about is dissolved gases. Have either of you dealt with gas bubble disease in your systems? I have not, but I've heard Uh, about it. No, I haven't either. But the number of times you've dealt with it is like surprising and and (laughs) concerning. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't do any. I didn't do any of them. I just found them. Yeah, I just couldn't believe like she was someone was asking advice on like a a recent like Daniel Zoom Friday or something. Mm -hmm. And like and Christine had multiple stories of how it could happen. And I was like, oh, my God, like I've never seen this before. And I've been in the field maybe even a little longer than you, right? Yeah. How, how many years have you been in? Uh, I've been year? keeping zebrafish in the lab since 2012. Yeah. Okay. Wow. For me, it was 2010. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I've done lab animal stuff since 2009, but yeah, zebrafish 2012. Um, yeah, man. Find your calling. Well, I, I left and took a job with fish that was only supposed to be seven weeks long because I'm like, it's 2012. The world's ending anyway, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I just watched that movie and I felt inspired. So that was the end of the Mayan calendar or whatever. Or something what, what like that. that. I, okay. don't, yeah. I don't know all the details. Something like that. <laughs> Still kicking. <laughs> why? Why? Why are we still kicking? <laughs> yeah. Well, we're doing a pretty good job of kicking ourselves out of existence. Hashtag it's true. warm oceans. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Uh, speaking of dissolved gases, that's all related. Mm. So, um, you yeah. As we all know that there's you know various gases in the atmosphere. So we've got, mm-hmm. you know, nitrogen, oxygen, carbon dioxide, a couple other ones, argon, et cetera. But the important ones for us when we're dealing with living things in an aqueous environment are nitrogen, oxygen, and carbon dioxide. The obviously dissolved oxygen is necessary for life. So, you know, fish need to be able to take up oxygen that's in solution in the water that they live in. They also need to live in an environment where their gills can pass that carbon dioxide as a waste product into the solution uh, in water. They can't just like bubble it out of their system necessarily. Now, Depending on water temperature, depending on the pressure that the water's under, generally, you know, if at atmospheric pressure, when the water's just like kind of sitting in a tank, there's going to be a certain amount of any of those gases that can be in solution. And you guys have probably like did in school, like making a super saturated solution of something mm-hmm. where you're applying certain things <laughs> to a solution of a solvent like water and then trying to put more in there than there should be so the classic uh, one is like salt right or sugar is salt that what you're or talking sugar. about yeah yeah like you, as soon as you heat that up heat up that water it can take way way more than if you just like tried to stir up salt or sugar into like regular water or cold yep. water yep exactly so and that temperature does impact the amount of dissolved gases that can be 
held in water as well. Mm. But the other thing to think about when we're talking about dissolved gases, generally things like carbon dioxide, and we've heard about this with like, you know, climate change and like all of that, where there's more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it dissolves into the oceans, it's acidifying the oceans. Carbon dioxide becomes like carbonic acid and like an acid in water in solution. And it can actually impact your pH, especially if your alkalinity is not great. (laughs) As we learned. It's all related. But, you know, breakdown of food, fish respiration, if there's too many fish in a tank, um, that can increase the amount of dissolved carbon dioxide that's in your water. But the number one thing we need to be concerned about when we're talking about just like freshwater fish and like their health aside from oxygen, where they all need a certain amount of oxygen to be able to breathe, is nitrogen. So nitrogen is like more than 75% of our atmospheric air, right? And it, it, it sits in a similar place in solution in water. And when you're talking about things like gas bubble disease, which we were just talking about, it's generally nitrogen that we're talking about. Um, that's what's causing the gas bubble disease. So if you've ever heard about like the bends like divers will get if they come up from depth too quickly, mm-hmm. if they're not careful about how they're they're diving. The nitrogen that's dissolved in their bloodstream can actually come out of solution and make bubbles and cause like chaos in your circulatory system, right? Um, and the same thing will happen with fish. <clears throat> so water that's really cold or water that's under pressure can actually really easily supersaturate mostly nitrogen. I mean, all the gases, but nitrogen is the, the big component to create these supersaturation events. Um, you guys both live in kind of cold climates. Have you mm-hmm. ever experienced when you turn the tap on in the wintertime and the water is like cloudy? Yes. So that is gas coming out of supersaturation. Mm. that's what that milkiness is when you've got these like micro bubbles in there um and like so city water if you're living in a city when the water's real cold it's underground it's super saturated down there in those pipes there's a Uh. super saturation situation happening with the nitrogen and so sometimes i'd see this occasionally where folks would like change their fish water in the winter time with tap water and then their fish all get gas bubble disease oh And it's because (laughs) that tap water is basically toxic to fish Mm -hmm. because there's so much nitrogen in it or total dissolved gases. It's well over 100% dissolved. Um, And so you need to be really mindful of that. I I even tell people in the wintertime, like, let your tap water sit for a bit. Yeah. Throw an air stone in it to try to get some of that super saturated gas out of it. Mm, okay maybe that's a good way to go yeah like i do change it's a big like 55 gallons pretty big so changing it out does give me like a little pause i guess and i do it's weird when i when i first fill the you know when i do the water change when i put new water in there it tends to look fine at first but then the next day it's cloudy and that really seems to oh. only happen in the winter time like it's kind of cloudy looking and then it clears up just fine and most of the fish are fine but occasionally i think I do get some issues where they're a little bit like I haven't had the best survivability in this tank. And I think maybe that's part of it too. <laughs> yeah. And so that, that's the thing, right? These gas bubble diseases. And I think I mentioned this on that zoom, you can have acute impacts where the animals are just like dying on the spot mm-hmm. because the total dissolved gases uh, go up to like 118, 125% or something like that. And then you've got animals just friggin' dropping dead, but then there's the chronic 
impact mm-hmm. where you've got like low levels of total dissolved gas being too high and it's coming out of solution. And to me anyway, and in my experience, and I have far too much of this because <laughs> um, <laughs> I had seen this as well, where there's like an air leak and water and air is getting in and going into pressured solution mm-hmm. in a system through something called the venturi which is like an air leak basically um so as that water's moving through a pipe at speed and under pressure and say there's a little pin prick hole in that pipe old pvc or there's a crack or something it's pulling in like vacuuming in air with that water as it's going by and it's causing it to go into solution and like getting super saturated so it's harder to do in warm water but it can happen and then you end up with this like a low level of like high, like super saturation, and it can cause like chronic injury to fish. I think the worst thing I would see would be, you know, we'd have a total dissolved gas like at 108 or something like that. And fish would be like kind of dying at higher rates than you'd want, or they'd be getting sick from like secondary infections because they're stressed and their circular system, circulatory system is like getting messed up. So they get like you know, gill hyperplasia or infections or things like that. So that's something to be mindful as well. But if you're someone who lives in anywhere that gets cold and you notice that, hey, your fish just dropped dead or got real sick looking after you did a water change, people love to say, hey, it was the chlorine or chloramine in the water. Mm. If you used a treatment, it probably wasn't. But if that water coming out of your tap in the wintertime is kind of white and milky, that water is not great for fish <laughs> in the the status that it's in. So does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I think the other thing to think about, and we did talk about oxygen a little bit, is that dissolved oxygen levels are different in different temperatures of water. So it's a lot harder to have a huge amount of dissolved oxygen in cold water, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I have that right. And so, you know, cold water fishes like salmon and trout, they need a heck of a lot of oxygen and you need to really get that water moving to make sure it's oxygenated enough for them. Um, if any of you have ever caught a fish when you were like a kid or whatever, or when you're older, that's fine too. Like a sunfish and with your grandpa and put it in a bucket and then it's dead. It's, oh. because, it's because it's suffocated basically. <laughs> and oh, no. you're six years old and you just keep doing it. You're like, why do they keep dying? Uh, I did want to correct you on this. Yeah. Uh, it's very weird because I remember, I just remember David yeah. Attenborough's voice coming into my sure, mind sure, sure. about Ooh. cold water being more oxygen rich yeah. um, and thus more nutrient rich. Oh, and it right. does say that cold water can hold more dissolved oxygen than warm Thank water. You. So it is the reverse. I always um, get that backwards. It's not- <laughs> Thank you. Well, yeah, because it's the opposite for certain things, right? Like dissolved solids for some reason, it seems like it's... It's the opposite, right? Like warm water can hold more. But Thank yeah, you. just so you know. Um, yep. So yeah. So don't tweet at us. We got you. <laughs> yeah, we got. It. Thank you so much. Live correction. I get that wrong every every single time. It's all I need good. to like get good. it tattooed on me or something. Like I just the only reason why I remember it is because I just remember that whales always go to like the cold environments to eat. Sure. And then I'm like, oh yeah, it's because like high and rich in oxygen, like. There's tons of life, just like yeah. life giving. So that's the totally. way I remember it in my in my brain. But yeah, that's I mean, cool. it's not like I set it to memory, but it just kind of like popped into my head. So there we go. <laughs> no, that's great. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. And so I think one thing to be mindful of with oxygen is just it's not the worst thing in the world to monitor your dissolved oxygen levels. 
Um, sometimes it's easier and less expensive to do that than it is to try to measure your total dissolved gas. Those probes are really expensive and annoying, but mm -hmm. a dissolved oxygen meter is pretty inexpensive, but it's good to know what that is um, and to have a picture of what that looks like, especially if you're having tanks that are really like crowded. Um, and, you know, in, when you're feeding fish a lot really quickly and they're excitedly jumping all over the place trying to eat that and the time, the hour or so after you fed, that dissolved oxygen may drop even to like slightly dangerous levels. Hmm. So it's something to be mindful of. When we were doing feed assessments, like a study where we were looking at feed, um, we were measuring the dissolved oxygen in the water, like before, during, and after feeding to get, mm -hmm. get an idea of what that looked like. Mm -hmm. So, and it goes up a little bit when you're actually feeding because the fish are breaking the surface of the water, jumping around and stuff. I don't know if you guys have that happen with your fish. I think my favorite thing when I'm feeding the fish is when they get so excited, they jump out and then like glue themselves to the side of the tank <laughs> <laughs> and then slide back down into the water. Do you guys ever see that happen? I don't, but I just love just that whole feeding a fish thing. It's very like, I enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. Or even them just recognizing you, yeah. um, uh -huh. especially if you're wearing like certain scrubs. So like for us, it's like purple scrubs. And okay. so they know it's like feeding time when they see someone in a purple scrub coming in. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, yes. <laughs> That's so funny. I don't think, I think I have too much variety of video game shirts that we don't have any particular... <laughs> We don't, mm -hmm. we don't have a uniform. We just wear, recognize them. We wear whatever. So, <laughs> but yeah. Any other thoughts on like dissolved gases in the water or anything else? You end up learning a, a little bit about it when you have the super saturation events, but it's mostly learning how to prevent it. You mostly just want to prevent your atmospheric air from getting forced into the same space as the water you're working with. That's kind of the bottom line, whether it's mm -hmm. like a pipe where there's a little bit of a gap and air can come in. So like if a sump has a low water level, that's a time when that's, that's a problem. Um, or, you know, if you're doing a filter change on your filtration system and you uh, don't refill it. So you're basically just having big canisters that are mostly full of air. And suddenly you turn that all on and you're pressurizing all the air that's in there into your system. That can be harmful too. Just things like that to think about. You want to be careful how much atmospheric air you're putting into your water under pressure. So so that's it for dissolved gases, at least for in our con in our like scope. Um, the next thing we're going to talk about is all the other dissolved things. Mm. <laughs> and this, you know, isn't something we think about too much in freshwater. So I'll talk a little bit about it and like the context for freshwater, but we'll talk a little bit about it as well for like like salt water a little bit. Again, I'm not an expert on salt water by any means. And a lot of these things are not necessarily things that we observe or like monitor on our freshwater systems. Mm -hmm. Unless you have a planted system, like a planted tank, um, like I have and I have it in the past, but like in a like aquaculture system, you're not necessarily monitoring that. So I think phosphates is the biggest one. And that's something that we I, at least do you guys monitor phosphates in your systems? Not regularly. No. Amber says no also. Yeah, <laughs> she I'm shook like, her head no. for the podcast. <laughs> so it's something that like if you monitor it and depending on the diet that you feed, it may or may not be important, right? So uh, the equipment that we use to monitor does measure phosphates. It's just kind of something that's part of that like 
photometer that we use, whatever, mm -hmm. it's fine. But we don't really, we're not really concerned about it because like, you know, the amount of fish food that we feed and the type of food we feed, it's full of phosphates. It's not, maybe not the best thing in the world, but it's not something we're concerned about. Now it it is a nutrient that's important for like plants and it's important for corals. Like it's a something that is an important chemical in the photosynthetic pathway. And I am not going to talk about that. Chemical. <laughs> I don't know anything about it. All I know is that it's important for photosynthesis. So <laughs> what's one thing that we're concerned about in our fish systems that photosynthesizes? Algae. Algae. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That makes sense. And now I, I was taught that that high phosphates equals lots of algae, which yeah. we have definitely seen in some of our tanks because we have a facility where we feed a really a, a lot, a lot of food to our salamanders and the light is pretty good in there. And excess food plus lots of light equals algae galore. It's very you annoying. You probably have pretty high nitrates in there too, right? No, not from mm. what I remember. Okay. Um, I have to go back and look. That's kind of the trifecta, right? Nitrates. Uh, phosphates and light yeah i guess so right like they really your plants really love that so like mm -hmm. whenever i want to water my plants at home i just pull water from my fish tank sure i think that's it. a good idea <laughs> just don't use it on food plants there's like risks there where really yeah oh, shoot i put it on my basil oh. it's not great i had read that you shouldn't uh, do that but right, i don't right. <laughs> Maybe, Good maybe to don't. Know. Good to know. You, yeah. I started so. tweaking out. <laughs> yeah. You're going to, you're going to get fish tuberculosis. Fish um, TB. Oh. oh no. Oh no. Can't wait to talk about that in an episode. <laughs> I know. Right. And I do I, love the smell and taste of fish food. That's, that's, I never told you guys that, but I'm really into it. That's funny. I, I can't, <laughs> I can't agree, but I did. This is not a fish related story, but I did lie when I was a child about whether or not I had a dog to a bus driver <laughs> in order to get dog treats. And then on my walk home, I ate some of them. <laughs> Cause they looked really good. And then they didn't I was taste jealous good. and they did smell good. They were like yeah. milk bone or something. And I was just like, yep. And my mom's like, what is she eating? As I'm walking home, I was like in kindergarten, I was like four. And she's like, you can't <laughs> eat dog treats. <laughs> i i think it's the power of you know how the power of smell is like one of the most like sure strong memory driven senses and like the smell of fish food when i like take a whiff of like some tetramin or something like it just brings me back to childhood and i love it so much it's super weird so, so funny yeah, yeah. I, I get that i get that <laughs> so funny <laughs> Sorry, I derailed you. No, so yeah, no, it leads lot to lots of algae. Mm -hmm. And you said excessive amounts. Or no, you didn't say this yet. But, but yeah, like too much can harm coral. But I, I don't know any of the details around that otherwise. But in general, it's like not something we're concerned about for like fish health. It's more of like an aesthetic thing um, for your if you're growing plants or if you're trying to combat algae in a system. Mm -hmm. So um, and now, Amber, that you're working with the Iacook. Have you had to have any discussions about algae on tanks yet? We haven't. Well, with our systems, we don't notice a lot of algae. Um, That's good. Because we don't really have like, I noticed it a lot when I used to take care of static tanks because we had actual plants in them. Sure. And so, yeah, especially the ones that were at the top closest to the light source, mm -hmm. like there'd be tons of algae. But I think our biggest issue is with the like salt grime. 
or like the stuff that's left behind by like the salt, like having too much salt in the system because sure. it's kind of brown. But again, yeah, that could also be, I don't know if that would also be like algae. If it's brown, it's algae. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So I yeah. guess we do have a lot of issues. If it's with like, that as well. <laughs> it starts as like dots and then it grows. Gotcha. Cause and I, it, before I was like, oh, green, like it would be like vividly green like on the tanks and so i'm just like oh Those okay are, yeah and there's different species of algae right some of them mm-hmm. are That's like true and they're like microorganisms they're like not quite plants right i don't remember all the biology of them but like you've got your blue I think technically blue, they're unicellular right sure or, yeah i think <laughs> i'm like we're getting out of our like knowledge yeah, base so sure. i'm a little afraid <laughs> but yeah the, the really green algae that you see that smells really funky it smells like spirulina or whatever that is blue green algae a lot of the time or like in that family mm-hmm. and then you've got green algae which is actually kind of brown in freshwater so gotcha um, yeah, yeah, we don't notice like too many issues with that, I guess. Not as much as like from the previous institution I came from. That was like a huge issue. So Okay. Okay, cool. All right. So the next thing we're going to talk about is iron. Again, important for plant growth. It can be toxic for invertebrates. So if you have like snails yes. or shrimps or anything like that in your tank, that's something to be mindful of. That's true of copper also, which you don't talk about, but I think that's, oh, yeah, I, forgot I know that's copper, true copper. But it's similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Copper is also important for plant growth in micro amounts, right? But, you know, sometimes you'll use like copper or iron in a system to try to like limit some of these microorganisms um, like some algaes and like phytoplankton from growing because they just can't live in those environments. And I think Josh, you and I talked about this at one point, but like we have the whole idea of chelated and free iron do you remember us ta- chatting about that because you we were, were talking about-, about that in the vein of copper i'm because uh, oh, i was it's the yeah, same <laughs> it's the same for both right yeah, but yeah, yeah i was worried about that because our systems yeah we've been having some copper issues uh, which we're kind of getting to the bottom mm-hmm. of and sort of figuring out so fingers crossed everything goes well with it but sorry continue no it's all good and so like when people talk about like these dissolved in solution you'll talk about whether they're chelated or not and that applies to copper as well where it's Mm. like chelated means that it's bonded to an organic molecule so it's kind of almost like in a little shield almost uh amino acids are generally the organic molecule we're talking about and it may be less toxic in that form so this is Mm. not necessarily something you can test for in your regular fish setup at home or in like even a zebrafish facility but it's something that like a outside testing facility can test for you what level and what kind of those um, metals that you have, whether they're chelated or non-chelated. Sometimes you can buy, you've probably seen like products that they sell to like treat fish that have copper in them. Hmm. I don't remember that seeing that, but I, yeah. it's used a lot for like dinoflagellate. So like uh, velvet that fish get Mm, mm -hmm. cupramine is used a lot but that's chelated so the idea is that like you can potentially use more but it's less toxic but it's still toxic to this like single-celled organism that you don't want around oh you know what i take that back i do remember using copper because we would use it in goldfish uh, some copper based thing for uh, a lot of like those crustacean like parasites like fish lice are very susceptible to it Mm -hmm. so yeah i remember that 
Yeah. In general, if you are keeping invertebrates, you need to be very mindful of those metals Mm -hmm. and like how many of them are in there. So, and in part, I think it's because some of these organisms, rather than having hemoglobin, so rather than having like iron based blood, they may have like copper blood, right? Mm -hmm. That's so, correct. Yeah. That's so cuttlefish are like that. So at our cuttlefish facility, we obviously want no copper at all. Um, even trace amounts is is, is bad. It can cause chronic issues uh, or just immediate death. So, yep. And it's because of that exact thing, right? They have copper-based blood. So it's blue. They're yep. blue bloods instead yeah. of red. It's like um, when well, horseshoe crabs are the same, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Their blood's blue. Yeah. Crazy. Fun fact. Those are those heavy metals, basically. And then we've got calcium. So we've already talked about calcium a lot, so I won't go over it too much. The big concern with calcium is if you've got too much in where it's almost like super saturated, it can precipitate out. It can damage equipment. It can cause kind of that same salt creep situation Mm -hmm. where you've got that mineral ring happening. Mm -hmm. But it is important for things like snails and shrimp. If you've got snails or shrimp in your system, they need calcium to be able to build their bodies basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you have like corals, you'll need those as well for the inverts that live in a, in a saltwater system. And for corals, they can't build their skeletons if they don't have uh, calcium. Same as us. Yeah. (laughs) We need calcium to build our bones. Otherwise no good. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. We just, uh, take it in a little differently than they do. So true. We don't bathe in milk. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it would be very. I mean, effective. I do to keep my skin uh, sure, youthful. But... Sure, yeah, I can tell. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's what you got to do if you're the coolest guy in lab animal science. So, yeah. <laughs> so. true, true, true. <laughs> All right, moving on. <laughs> Another related chemical is magnesium. So magnesium is important for calcification. You cannot do the process of calcifying. Uh, Mm. without magnesium. Again, I'm not doing that chemistry. I'm not going to explain that, (laughs) but magnesium is important more so in like, like saltwater tanks. So for corals and invertebrates, but snails and shrimp in freshwater, some other invertebrates in freshwater that have like hard exoskeletons or a shell, they are going to need magnesium as well because they can't do, they can't use the calcium without it. So, um, Mm. And then there's a whole bunch of other traces that I am really not going to get into. You've got your strontium, which I don't know. That's a saltwater thing. <laughs> yes. Amino acids, iodine, silica, and then all your different traces that are even more traced than the, the, those that I listed. So um, I don't know if any of you guys have anything you want to add about those little minerals or if there's another one that you think I missed. Um, so the only thing that I'll say is, is things like strontium, I think it's useful for invertebrates, uh, cause I remember them like, uh, cuttlefish needing a certain level of it for there's, I think for the, something called the statolith, which is like an organ that they, I, I don't even know. I'm getting into the weeds basically, but sure. I know that it's very common for people who do salt water to start with stripped down water, like RO water. Mm-hmm. So your basic just pure water, and then you add everything you need via like a bioassay salts or via all the little uh, minerals and trace elements that you need via little bottles. So they sell like a lot of these uh, reef companies will sell like bottles of different things that you need and you just add all those things. And all the yep. coral guys that were coming into the store would buy all these bottles. Yep. So it is important for a lot of those things to have like proper growth and health of your of your reef tank. I don't know about in freshwater. I probably, probably not the case. Um, I think it depends on the plants that you're growing. 
Mm -hmm. Like you can buy all the trace minerals, like for my plant to tank, because I do like carbon dioxide dosing on it. Mm -hmm. uh, the plants grow so quickly. And I, if I, if I want them to outcompete the algae that also likes all those things that are in the tank, um, I have to make sure that those traits, some of those traces like iodine, et cetera, are in the water. Oh, Otherwise man. the plants can't grow fast enough. I'm going to get you. I need to get advice from you about that. So I feel like I've had some just like algae just loves to cover over my plants and then just yeah. murder them. And then yeah, I'm like, you Dang have it. to, you got to outcompete that algae. And so part of that is carbon dioxide. That's a big okay. part of it is carbon dioxide. It's easy to do. We'll chat about it. Oh, <laughs> but... can't wait. I'm going to redo my whole tank. It's like, just, it's too bare bones still. The hardest I, wanna, part... I will never show you it again. Until... <laughs> <No>. <laughs> hey, I, I couldn't even, I could not get a dig in with the picture of you with those sorority, the betas. The sorority betas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I was like, together. oh, this, this is a nice looking tank. What happened? <laughs> so, anyway, but yeah, so that's it for like trace uh, elements, etc. Um, and then the last thing that I wanted to talk about, but I really don't want to talk about it. Who is does? <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> ORP. Do you guys know Ooh. anything about this? Did you learn about it for the work that you do? <laughs> uh, so this is what I'll say about ORP is that basically a number of different um, like vendors and monitoring systems come with like, they always seem to like throw it in like, oh, we do pH and ORP. You could test both. And I'm like, awesome. What is it? And they're all like, yeah, I don't, you know, like it's just, and they just all stumble over their words. And I Googled it and I was like, still kind of lost. Like I was like, does this matter? I don't really know <laughs> yeah but please lead us <laughs> yeah do you did you have any thoughts on it, amber did you like have you ever seen it marketed or anything like that yeah no like this is stuff that i learned in like chemistry and sure. i'm kind of just like why do we yeah. need <laughs> this is like hey remember learning redox reactions yeah that's this <laughs> you thought you weren't gonna need it but maybe Leo you do Gosker. <laughs> no, you still don't really need it. It's okay. Um, I'm here to tell you that I don't think it's all that important, at least for the context of what we're talking about. It's not bad to know kind of what it is, mm -hmm. but I am not sure that in the context of, you know, small freshwater fish, whether in a home aquarium or, you know, in a recirculating system, zebrafish or whatever, I don't think it's something that's super important for us. Um it basically is the ability of your solution solvent water to oxidize or reduce other substances that are in that water. And the ORP that you'll see literally means oxidation reduction potential. It seems like it's a, an important value to monitor in like huge aquaculture setups that have like a huge volume of like animals growing on a system that are eating a huge amount of food and pooping a huge amount of poop. It also seems to be important in like a aquaculture setup that has like dirt bottoms or like a big open pond kind of setup. Oh. That seems mm -hmm. like, cause you're concerned about the ability of the dirt substrate that your, your fish are living in to do this oxidation reduction kind of situation. So when the redox potential is lower, your ORP is lower. It means that I know it sounds like a barf, which is what I want to do. It, when does. I it yeah. sounds like you just had too many drinks. You're like, ORP. Yeah, right, exactly. I gotta go, guys. Uh, but yeah, when your ORP is lower, that means you have more organic waste in your system. So your catfish or whatever are like <laughs> pooping a lot. 
So that's really all you need to know about it. So at least for the context of us, maybe we can have an aquaculture person on one day and they can tell us all about it, but I am not that person and I do not want to be. Yeah. It doesn't sound very important. No, that didn't work. Okay. Sorry. I tried. (laughs) You were thinking about that the whole time, right? I, yeah, I was not listening to anything you were saying. I was just thinking about how to make puns out of orp. That's okay. It's all good. Uh, but yeah, that's it for the water chemistry. Do you guys have any questions or anything you wanted to add? All right, I can it's wrap us up, guys. Cool. Thank you so much for uh, for listening to me drone on about chemistry for longer than I ever wanted to. No, I learned so much, honestly. And I think a lot of other people could learn from this as well. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Amber and I both appreciate you taking the lead on this one, Christine, and getting into the into the weeds about water chemistry because it's it's definitely a tough subject, uh, even though it's it's pretty fun uh, to get it to get into the nitty gritty of it sometimes. So for sure. All right. Well, thanks. All right. So we're going to wrap it up. Thank you for listening to Getting Fishy with it. You can find our website with show notes at gettingfishypod.substack.com. You can find us on Twitter at gettingfishypod and on Instagram at gettingfishypod. You can also find us on Facebook and LinkedIn by searching for Getting Fishy with it. If you want to drop us an email, you can send your complaints or questions to gettingfishypod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Our theme music is Best Time by Fast Sounds, and our audio is edited by the fantastic Amber Park Giadini. We've been getting fishy with it. So keep schooling, my friends, because knowledge is power.